0: This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Moamir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Hurry, is it, so you it. This is Van Color. <laughs> There is no way that we can talk about Vancouver without talking about housing. Earlier this year, the Royal Bank of Canada quietly reported that housing costs in Metro Vancouver have reached, quote, the worst affordability levels ever recorded anywhere in Canada, unquote. We're in a situation where home sales are falling and construction is increasing well beyond population growth, but home prices continue to rise and reach new record highs. Make no bones about it, we need prioritized, prompt, and powerful leadership in on housing in this city. Previous political administrations have failed us. That's why so many elected municipal officials in Metro Vancouver, including nine mayors, are not seeking re-election. This dramatic changing of the guard is indicative of the utter distrust that voters have for their previous municipal representation and the self-awareness of that old political guard to quietly slink out of power today on this is van color i'm joined by urban design professional city planner community activist and very possibly the next mayor of vancouver patrick condon he has formally announced that he is seeking the mayoral nomination of the coalition of progressive electors otherwise known as Cope, vancouver's oldest left-leaning political party as the founding chair of the urban design, uh, of, of urban design at the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, with a wealth of scholarship and professional experience, Patrick has a resume, a rhetoric, and a radical platform that may be the remedy for Vancouver's unprecedented housing crisis. Today, he's going to try to explain Vancouver's current housing market to us. Mr. Condon, how are you, sir?
1: I'm great, Mo. Great to be here.
0: Well, thank you for taking the time to be here. Sure. I really appreciate it. You know, on the first episode... The topic was dating in Vancouver, and now in the second episode, we're going to talk about housing in Vancouver. Well, you
1: kind of need both in most circumstances. <laughs> in,
0: so in true millennial fashion, right. you know, we're, we're keeping our priorities right, straight. Exactly. <laughs> I want to start right at the beginning, because everyone uses this word crisis. Um, but what does it mean? Specifically, what metrics make a housing crisis, and how is Vancouver in a housing crisis per those metrics?
1: Uh, well, it's uh, describable in terms of uh, people's experience. For example, I was uh, talking to a very successful uh, entrepreneur in the city and uh, not talking out of school here. He makes about 200000 a year and he's renting and he's got three kids and he figure out, figures out he can't buy a house of any kind. Yeah. That's suitable. Now that. That's at the top ten sure. percent of uh, Canadian incomes. The average income here is uh, seventy-four thousand. Family income is seventy-four thousand. So, with average incomes, you don't have any chance at all of owning a home, and uh, a- even renting a home uh, that's suitable for a family would consume more than fifty percent of your income. So that that is a crisis. No other no other city in uh, uh, North America has. It' this bad. Uh, San Francisco and New York, you know, they're bad, but Mm -hmm. they're not this bad. So that's what constitutes crisis. And uh, of course, at the lowest end of the scale, if you're only making, you know, twenty-two thousand or below, uh, or my my college graduates with master's degrees, they're making forty thousand. You know, forget about it. I I uh, talk to my students. I teach a very large lecture class, and you know, every year I. Ask them, uh, I've gotten in the habit of asking them. All right, how many of you think you're going to be able to afford to buy or rent a home in Vancouver and live here? You know, for your careers. Fewer and fewer hands go up every year. Until last yeah. year, there was only a couple hands went up. And I pointed to one of them and I says, Well, what what job do you think you're going to get <laughs> that'll let you afford to you know stay in Vancouver? And of course, the guy goes real estate.
0: <laughs> Smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess that's the that's the question. You know, this trend has just continued, and it continues, and it continues. So, if we continue on this path and keep the status quo, what does it mean for people who live and work in this city?
1: Well, it means that they have to move out. It means that they have to move further and further away, out to you know, uh, uh, out to uh, out to the Langleys and beyond, uh, in order to find anything that they can afford. And they're in a car. You know, two and a half hours a day. Uh, our infrastructure gets stretched to the breaking point. Uh, finally, they get frustrated and they move to you know Regina. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and a lot of people actually are doing that. Yeah, you know, Prince Edward Island. You could you buy a house there for one hundred fifty thousand dollars. So mm-hmm. you know, cash out your cash out your shack.
0: Wouldn't that have an effect on businesses as well? So yeah. if you're a business trying to attract young talent, but all your young talents, you know, forty kilometers away. You have to pay them quite a bit to entice them to make that commute. Right? Absolutely.
1: There was an article in the paper yesterday about. Uh uh, High tech uh, companies that are they want to uh, move into the False Creek Flats, but they want to put housing above their uh, their offices because they can't figure out any other way that they can they can you know get employees to to live here.
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: Uh, and and the related as- aspect of this is you know we, we don't just have a housing problem; we have a wages problem. Yeah, we have the lowest wages in can- in Canada, and way way lower than any global city and. In North America, uh, people with the same education and same entry level into the high-tech market in San Francisco make the equivalent of at least twice as much in real dollars than mm-hmm. our graduates here.
0: Interesting.
1: So uh, w- Vancouver is very peculiar, and that's why that uh, H uh, that bank report was so compelling, is that the wages are, are low mm-hmm. and the cost of housing is high. How does that make sense? It you doesn't. Know? <laughs> it doesn't. Wages are supposed to match uh, housing, but in this case it doesn't.
0: And I, th- I think that's that's just it. Is that intuitively people can recognize that there is something wrong here, and they have recognized that for years. Uh, you see empty condos in Coal Harbor. You see the difficulty in just finding a rental unit. There's more density, more construction, skyrocketing home prices. But year to year, you're looking at your paycheck, and it's it's not going up by that much. You know, it's not.
1: Well, that's because it has nothing to do with wages at all. Absolutely, it has only to do with the. Uh, uh, the asset value of the commodity known as Vancouver real estate.
0: And that's my next question. So in a very, I know, I know it's not a simple topic, but in a way for the layman to understand, including myself, how did this happen? What caused this housing crisis?
1: Uh, it's global, and uh, Vancouver has the uh, was unlucky enough to be at the very epi- epicenter of this global financial hurricane. Uh, Vancouver, you know, as we all know, attractive place. The mountains, the air is clean. Uh, and if you look, if you if you Google the question, where can I get the best return on my investment uh, at over five percent a year for the last? hundred years uh, vancouver comes up better than stocks better than almost anything right and uh it's made even worse by the fact that we have a world that is awash in cash right now because the one percent are controlling more and more of the global economy and they don't have very many places they think to put that kind of money and they're looking for safe and secure and uh, and, and lucrative in terms of how much uh, value it will return uh, 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 investments, and uh, and it has a name, and it's called you know global asset inflation. And Vancouver happens to be the place where that asset inflation is going up higher and higher. By asset inflation, I'm talking about real estate, stocks, bonds, and you know precious metals, and maybe now Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But but consequently, Vancouver's real estate is no longer homes; it's just an investment. And uh, it's not just international capital that does that. It's people who live here who have a few million dollars uh, who say, well, uh, you know, might as well buy a condo and maybe park my kid in there for a while. Uh, You know, so it's complicated. Uh, It's not all from Asia. Uh, There's some from Asia, but it's really people who have, you know, enough money to think about where to put that money. And Vancouver real estate looks like a really great thing to put it into.
0: Sure. And and that makes sense to me. But I guess there's there's sort of two sides to this handshake, right? There's people looking to park money, but then there would also be enablers or or people that allow certain public policy for money to be dumped in such a way. I mean, when, when I've just said that the average Vancouverite could intuit that something was not right, you know, how did previous administrations on a municipal level or provincial level allow things to go from bad to worse? to insane like it just seemed political will was so disincentivized in in figuring out what was happening
1: yeah well you know this 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 opens up a, a whole other topic about uh, what what is happening to the global economy and how did we get here? And it's hard to k- encapsulate this in less than a, a one minute reply. But you know <laughs> how we take can two put it. it if how, okay, I'll take two minutes. <laughs> how we can uh, kind of track the trajectory of this problem in Vancouver is to say there was a time in the '80s and '90s, actually the '70s and '80s, uh, when we uh, had a different. Uh, outlook on the world. Uh, we thought that the government should intervene in, uh, in ways necessary so that certain basic needs such as housing were accommodated. And back in the day, we would tax sufficiently uh, in order to do that, and some of that tax money went to things like you know co-op housing and uh, uh, the housing on South Falls Creek uh, on uh, on leased land, mm-hmm. and so um, non-market housing. Not yeah okay. yeah that's right. Basically non-market housing, housing that's protected from the vagaries of the marketplace, and structured in such a way that it can pretty much always be affordable by people with what I call normal. Incomes, sure. you know, average incomes uh, for people who you know 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 how to do stuff and do stuff well, uh, but uh, uh, you can kind of mark the change in that at- attitude with what people generally call the Reagan-Thatcher uh, revolution, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, suddenly it became. Suspect for the government to do anything. The private sector was supposed to do everything. Right. So a lot of uh, the structure of government and even capitalism itself uh, was changed so that more money flowed to the private sector to do things for the public, on the presumption that you know much more efficient to do it that way because you know businesses are more efficient than government. <clears throat> but specifically Excuse in me. Vancouver,
0: um, what uh, what was done here that allowed such big in, uh, such a big influx of cash to be dumped, speculated, parked in the... Well, you know, I mean, I, that's a good question
1: and I'm getting to that. It's it's that, that that philosophy and it wasn't just on the right wing but the center and the central left also mm-hmm. uh, felt the same way. <clears throat> it's called the neoliberal consensus. Yeah. And uh, it was to get rid of all restriction on the global flow of capital. So, mm. uh, 40 years ago, capital didn't flow at all like it does now. But now in comparison with 40 years ago, it's much much easier to move money into a place, take it out of China, take it out of, you know, St. Petersburg, Russia, wherever, and sure. put it into here. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is what has happened. And and the, the Canadian economy has for a long time been driven, in, at least in part, by accepting that kind of capital flow, because, you know, you get the money in, you can tax it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good thing, right? Money's a good thing. So the more you have, the, the presumably, the better it is, until yeah. your own wage earners get closed out of the game. Yeah. And that is what has happened. I mean, reason. Recently in and BC, they're starting to do things like what you know. Everybody's uh, talking about the, this thing called the school tax on the highest pr- uh, priced properties, and the uh, fifteen to t- now twenty percent tax on uh, uh, foreign buying and the speculation tax. So we're starting to do some things now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit too little, too late. So it's not a, not really a solution.
0: So I want to go back to this idea of. of uh global cash moving into Vancouver. There's been incredible work done by Sam Cooper, Kathy Tomlinson, and others, including a global news investigation that effectively brought to light this idea of the Vancouver model, a system where criminal organizations were moving drugs, including fentanyl, and money around the world um, while laundering these proceeds through BC casinos and parking it in Vancouver real estate. The hot topic right now, of course, is the recent release of the Dirty Money Report by former Deputy Commissioner of the RCMP, Peter German. And Attorney General David Eby has basically exposed how not only government regulations under the BC Liberals were so lax that the province essentially became an ally of organized crime, but how the provincial government actively enabled money laundering in BC by squashing an integrated gaming enforcement team and blaming the RCMP ignoring the government's internal gambling enforcement regulator, complaining about specific RCMP officers who spoke up about money laundering, and firing the head of the gaming, in, uh, of gaming enforcement after he brought the problem of money laundering to the desk of then-Finance Minister Mike DeYoung, to the point where there were no active police investigations into money laundering in 2014 and 2015, where up to $20 million per month were flowing through BC casinos in suspicious transactions so in my opinion you know the report shows that the bc liberal government was not only stupid in terms of following an ideology of free global cash flow but they some of them were com- complicit in making bc specifically vancouver the world's easiest laundromat yeah uh, and and what makes all of this more concerning is that when you look at this model it's fueled the two biggest crises in Vancouver right now, housing, where laundered money was often parked, and opioids, where a lot of this cash was originating from. But I'm almost curious, like on a micro level, when it comes to developers, real estate marketers who were marketing properties in different countries and municipal governments, are we to believe that all these players in Vancouver were just naive and simply unaware as to what was going on when you had staggeringly abnormal amounts of cash and capital coming into this city?
1: Some of them were unaware. Some of them were complicit. Uh, but (laughs) but But it operates as a system. You know, it's an entire global system of how money moves around. I mean, uh, you know, Russian President Putin and his oligarchs, you know, I mean, we really have a system where you can't tell the criminals from the capitalists anymore. I don't want to get too political here. You can get as political but, as you want. <laughs> You're running for office, sir. You were, you were allowed yeah, to get Well, uh, you know, I don't know how far to go. But uh, uh, but I, I think the point – the bigger point here is we kind of need – you know, I mean, if I'm an admirer of Bernie Sanders, and he always talks about we need a political revolution, mm-hmm. and you know, in Vancouver we need a political revolution. We need to we need to understand that we're in the grip of you know forces that are huge, and uh, some of those people in that call it a nefarious cabal, if you will, mm-hmm. are uh, complicit, and some are just naive, and some are just trying to make a buck and doing it very well and getting rich. Uh, but that's not really serving the people in the city, and you know, particularly young people, and you know, people of a millennial generation, the people I teach up at UBC, it's not serving their interests at all. So the way I put it is, you know, we're up against great forces. What can we do? Not everything, but one thing I think we can do is buy back the land of this city, mm-hmm. and use the money that's flowing into the city to buy back that land uh that's why i talk a lot about non-market housing basically what that is is the city is in a position to tax the money coming in most of it through development and the high-end houses that are attracting the money of these oligarchs or nice people i don't know doesn't matter <laughs> they're rich and they can afford it so uh so to uh, capture an appropriate uh, an appropriate amount of of, of the money coming into development and high-end properties and take that money and use it to buy back land. Uh, and, and then once we have that land, put buildings on that land, uh, we protect that land from the vagaries of the market by keeping it at public hands. Mm-hmm. It can be nonprofit corporations. It can be churches. It can be the city. It can be a lot of things, but keep it in public hands, deed restricted. So it's not to be sold forever. And the land of this city, 50% of it is my target. Eventually. Wow. Uh, 50% of the land and 50% of the housing would be on uh, land and in buildings that are protected from the ups and downs of the marketplace and always held Uh, Affordably, uh, in proportion to the wages that people are paid in this region,
0: Mm -hmm. and and that that brings me to the meat of this conversation of why you're running and what your solutions are for this crisis that you're obviously very passionate about. Uh, You've talked about non-market housing. Uh, What about market housing? Uh, I I believe you make a distinction between a land assembly strategy and a hiving strategy, and I was wondering which do you promote or which do you see Vancouver should
1: take? There's, there's two approaches. So 50% of it is non-market. The other 50% of it is market. But we still have to get our people into the market side, too. So mm-hmm. uh, it may be a little bit hard to describe. I wish I'd have drawing, but this is radio, so I can't do the <laughs> drawing. But... Yeah, if you look at a parcel, and I'll try to be brief on this one, sure. if you look at a parcel in the city of Vancouver, most of them are 3,000 square feet, a, a, a square foot of dirt costs about $1,000 now, wow. so okay. nobody you can't really afford 3,000 square feet, <laughs> so you have to divide that 3,000 square feet up between you and four, or five, or six other families in right. order for it to make sense. So if you look at the so-called single-family areas of the cities, which aren't really single families because they've all been rezoned for three families now. So they're really triplex long uh, uh, parcels now, but anyway, people think of them as single-family lots. Uh, uh, the only way to make the economics work when you compare it to the seventy-four thousand average uh, uh, income is to uh, split it up into basically five. Uh, uh condo units or condo apartments or all apartments or something like that the point mm-hmm. is it has to be five rather than two or one and then it starts to work when you acquire the land for 1.5 million now my numbers go off the chart if the if the property continues to boost up to 2.5 or 3 million dollars and in some parts of the city that's already happened fortunately in some parts of the city you can still get a you can still get a parcel for about a million dollars the point to make here, though, is that's only for the people who make 50% of the uh, medium wage, who make average incomes and above. Right. So that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know? A- and a lot of people are going to want to get equity, right? Absolutely. Th- yeah. The thing that's just dis- disadvantageous about the non-market side of it is when you go into it, in most cases, you get some equity, but not as much as... You're not going hit to a, hit a huge payday. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a co-op... Or if you're in a uh, like the condominiums down on South Falls Creek, which you can buy and sell, but because you don't own the land, you're, the increase in the value of that doesn't go up astronomically. Right. If people look at their tax bills, people who own homes, you look and you say part of it is the building. The building's usually worth, you know, it might be 150,000 or something like that. It's and then the land under it is 1.5 million. So you know the value of your home is actually wrapped up in the land. So anyway, to circle back to the idea of non-market housing, what makes it affordable is you don't get the equity value of that land. But here's the other side of that thing. Maybe some of our people want that equity value, so they go and, you know, they take their, you know, 74000 family or 80 or 90 or whatever it is and they buy into these neighborhoods and then you know they have a piece of land i expect that land to continue to inflate because i don't see uh i don't see uh you know this long-term asset inflation of urban real estate ever ever going away Mm -hmm. unless there is a global calamity i mean it's happened you know in 2007 Particularly in the United States, there was a huge real estate crash. You know, of course, so it's yeah. possible it can happen, but it didn't happen here in 2007. It just flattened out for a while, and even uh, in uh, Europe, where they had, um, uh, you know, their banks went uh, down, down under. It wasn't real estate that drove them down. Anyway, the point being, it doesn't look like real estate going to go down. So, mm-hmm. you know, some people want to buy in, and, uh, and, and and to
0: clarify, that's not your purpose. Is to no, you're you're not because that accusation gets. Tossed around quite a bit of, oh, if X person comes in power, if this person comes in power, you know, all the equity that's saved up in your home or all the equity that's appreciated is going to go. Yeah, thank you
1: for pointing that out, right? I mean, it's so my approach is a mixed approach. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how the, I'm trying to figure out how people your age, you know, uh, under 40 are going to be able to, you know, live here during this next 20 year period and and have kids here because if mm-hmm. we can't figure that out, you're going to have, mon- this is going to become the Monaco of North America. Right. Uh, you know, it's just going to be a place to park your cash and come on vacation a couple of times in your life. You know, that's nice, but it's not, gonna <laughs> it's not be, nice for people who live not, here not, or, yeah, or want to live here. Right. Right. It's just not nice.
0: Yeah. Um, on the topic of non-market housing, how common is it in other municipalities? And I don't necessarily mean Canada, but globally or. Cities that you can compare to Vancouver, um, I believe you talk about Vienna a lot, and, and do. The, the plan that they had. Is is this a common thing, or pretty common? Is it?
1: Yeah, and, and I and I look at Vienna because the parallels are very uh, noticeable between Vancouver and Vienna. They both start with V, and, you know. They have <laughs> other parallels as well, but uh, uh, they started uh, quite a while ago when they had a severe housing crunch, actually, uh, right after World War One, mm-hmm. and uh, they had you know people sleeping four to a bed uh, and uh, spending all of their income on housing uh uh, i I sort of want to digress into the idea of uh, henry george who who uh, spent a lot of his life talking about why this phenomenon occurs why over time land ends up uh capturing all the value of the work that people do to make a city great. That's mm-hmm. basically what's happening here is all that work we're all doing is all going into land value. Uh, maybe if we have time, we'll come back to that. But I'll talk about Vienna for a minute. So they had a similar situation where the landlords, literally, they were lords and only they could vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they really were lords and they lorded it over the uh, the workers. And the workers had no power. They had no vote and uh, – uh, and so consequently, the landlords ended up with all the money, and the, the uh, and the workers ended up with none. Uh, but uh, they had a political shift, and maybe we're in the midst of a political shift right now. And the city government uh, decided that they were going to actually uh, fix this problem uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, one, they put rent control on right away, and I'm in favor of a rent freeze for this city. You know, we have to do something Monday, and a rent freeze is a good thing to do. Uh, but what they also did was to tax. Um, high-end homes at the same uh, high-end real estate property which is basically a tax on land mm-hmm. uh, uh, at a at a progressive and a high level and they took all that money and they put it into starting a massive campaign to uh, acquire existing property uh, Apartment buildings, or build their own and turn them into non-market housing. Okay. So the buildings could often be exactly the same ones, but the land that they sat on would be in public hands now. Gotcha. And that and that would hmm. that would uh, lower the prices. And the neat thing about this whole trick, which I love, and I, I hope the people listening love too, is that by raising the um, tax on development and on high-end properties, they ended up fortuitously lowering the value of the land underneath that private property. Development land in this city is enormously expensive, and if you ever breathe the idea that it's going to be okay to put a tower on, sometimes it goes up by a factor of 10. So that's right, that's land speculation. Yeah. They quashed the land speculation because the tax structure was such that it, uh, it, it, it reduced the strength of that speculative pressure. Mm-hmm. So the city was able, therefore... To, by by taxing in the first place appropriately and strategically, basically on land, to lower the price of land and take the money that was gained by that tax and turn around and buy land at a lower price. Get it?
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So I, now I do want to get to the election as well. Okay. Um, and I appreciate the 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 solutions that you've offered. Is it is it fair to Call you an interventionist, a government interventionist?
1: Though. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you call me a democratic socialist if you want. <laughs> you know, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't be scared by it. But yeah, the, okay. Here's the deal. Yeah, if this market doesn't demand government intervention, or we'll call it public intervention, you know to intervene in the market which is completely broken and out of control mm-hmm. i don't know what situation does call for it right sure. i mean is i think that's fair it, it, you know a roof over your head is very fundamental and we're not saying you know we're going to take anybody's home mm-hmm. away or anything like that I, obviously uh, i'm not a you know i'm not a communist yeah uh, but uh, to intervene in the marketplace such that uh, we understand that uh, the flow of money into this in the city is in real estate is going in a direction which is foreclosing the possibility of our people getting homes, mm-hmm. and also understand that we have appropriate legal mechanisms, largely taxation mechanisms, that can be used to redirect that flow and uh, and to capitalize on that flow to secure permanently affordable homes for people who live and work here mm-hmm. and their families, uh, I think it's irresponsible not to do that.
0: Fair enough. And and the reason I, I wanted to get that, that la- you can call it a label or, or whatever, but the reason why I wanted you to say that you're an interventionist, is because out of the eight declared mayoral candidates for the city of Vancouver, I think that there are two whose platform stand in direct contrast to each other. And this might change as we get closer to October, but as of recording, I believe that two candidates best represent the crossroads in which Vancouver finds itself. And these two candidates are you and sitting councillor, Hector Bremer. Both you and Hector have taken a central and very vocal focus on the housing crisis, making it the centerpiece of your respective campaigns. And Hector is proposing a more market-based, supply-side solution, while you're approach, as you also just said, is much more interventionist. And I believe that ultimately, and please excuse me for being dramatic, but this dichotomy between Hector's free market platform and your interventionist city planning platform symbolizes the battle for Vancouver's soul. Am I fair to suggest that? Is this ultimately the choice that Vancouver has to make, not necessarily between you and Hector, but between free market and government intervention? Yes. (laughs)
1: Yes. And let the voters let the voters decide. You know, I'm I've, I've and I came to this conclusion reluctantly, but I'm I'm very clear that the market is broken and no amount of adding supply is going to fix fix the problem. Mm-hmm. That's something I am very clear on. So I do not agree that by opening up the floodgates and letting building happen, happen everywhere that that will reduce prices. The indications I see and the evidence I see suggest that exactly the opposite has occurred over the last 10 years and will continue to occur over the next 10, 20, or 30 years. So I think that's a failed strategy. But again, let the voter decide, because that is, as you put it, I think the stark question. Is this solved by intervening in the marketplace and saying, no, the free market is not going to fix this one. In fact, the free market seems in this case to be the problem. Uh, That's my position, that the free market in this case around the issue of housing because of global forces not local supply and demand issues because of global forces uh, that's the problem and uh, the solution necessarily and I come to it reluctantly uh, would have to be to intervene and as I've said before to buy back our land from mm-hmm. global speculation sure. that's that's at the core of what I'm saying
0: and I, I I think that's great and I think there's there's two points you hit on the first being, You know, if people just want to do a simple supply and demand graph, the supply creation is not serving the local demand of people that want to live here, right? right? That's not – that graph is much too simplistic for what's happening here. That's right. And – it just, I find it really interesting because you have people that break it down in way too simplistic terms. And I'm all for simplicity or making things easy, but you have people that I would consider density bros of you just, you make more supply and then, yeah, you know, no, it's going to be. Them gonna on gonna Twitter, st- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope you're not on Twitter too much. No, be, I'm, yeah. I'm,
1: I'm, I'm moving away
0: from Twitter. <laughs> yeah. But it's just that argument where it doesn't seem to be working. And then we're not sure how many empty homes there are. and And clearly, people who work here or want to work here are being priced on the market. So I, I think if we can all agree that we are in a crisis, which I think you and I yeah. can agree on, we might not agree on the exact solutions, but if we agree that we are in a crisis, every crisis requires sort of an extra effort or intervention to correct itself or to, or to be corrected. And it's it's an interesting argument that some people are making that, no, you just need more liberalization <laughs> right. yeah
1: and, and at what point do we say we gave that 40 years of austerity politics and uh you know market liberalization and right. the government withdrawing from realm after realm after realm uh at what point do we say oops i think yeah we maybe went too far at least in the housing portfolio for this little place called vancouver yeah you know Maybe we're not. Maybe I'm not attacking liberal strategies, you know, neoliberal strategies, or, 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 or the privatization of everything, or austerity budgets. Maybe I'm not that kind of radical guy, but I am when it comes to housing in Vancouver. Sure. Making the case that uh, the free market has not solved it and won't solve it.
0: And that's the thing. Like I would consider myself a centrist, maybe fiscally even a little right of center, but I would say that if we all agree that this is a crisis, then it requires intervention. Right. Just out of curiosity, changing gears here for a second, uh, what do you think of the name for Hector Bremer's new party? Have you heard it? Uh,
1: There's so many new parties coming around. (laughs) What's his? uh... His is Yes Vancouver. Oh, yeah. Well, I I don't know. Uh, I guess it means yes to everything, you know, yes to (laughs) more building and yes here, yes
0: there, you know, never say no. Well, what's amazing is his team failed to do a simple google search if they had google searched those two words yes vancouver they would have seen the first search result belonging to an organization called yes vancouver which is a philanthropic women's group uh, that raises money in partnership with an international charity to provide women with the tools to become economically independent so it it's just it's sort of a piece of trivia for me but I just find it's so hilarious that no one bothered to do that and this guy's supposed to be this like marketing communications specialist or whatever title he gave himself to avoid the fact that he's basically a lobbyist and this is his good brandings. Yeah, well, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. You
1: know, to, to trip out of the gate on day one. You know, that's that's like a nightmare. So I feel I kind of feel bad for him.
0: <laughs> you almost do, but I again, do. it was it would be a quick Google search. I know, <laughs> I know. So, but, but, you know, have you had? Do you have a slogan ready for
1: the campaign? Oh boy, we're test driving a couple. You know, I hate the whole slogan thing, but uh, and they have to be so short. Uh, but. Uh, a place for a place for us all is kind of the okay the can big you promise idea. me that you'll google it first yeah, to see if there's yeah, any, yeah, any yeah. Vancouver organizations yeah 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 well <laughs> thank you for the for the warning and, and then the other one the other one which i basically have two things we've talked about housing and how to get it but my other thing is to do a city plan okay to figure out where all that stuff is going to go and to get the to get the allegiance of every neighborhood that's always been a problem and mm-hmm. you know my career's uh, not been about this issue really Per se, it's been mostly about public participation and how to work with communities to get sustainable plans. Uh, Housing affordability being a key part of it, but there's other things like transportation, ecological protection, and so forth.
0: Can you explain what that is? What is a city plan and... and You've said that Vancouver actually doesn't have one.
1: Yeah, I know. It surprises people. People think you're crazy because they got all kinds of plans. You know, I was talking to, uh, I had to go to a meeting about a plan for Marpol. You know, we have plans, but we don't have a city plan. And very few people really understand that. Mm-hmm. And people with long memories, too, they say, well, we've got, we actually had this thing called city plan and the council approved it. That was not a plan. It was, a, it turned into a set of goals that was done in the 1990s. Okay, gotcha, okay. Here, here's the short story. I've got this one.
0: Memorized. We got about five minutes. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, great. I'll give. <laughs> but it, I'll, a little less. I'll put
1: two, two minutes into this. Sure. So, so uh, every other every other city in the Lower Mainland has to have a plan. They're forced by law to have a plan. Uh, Vancouver is not because we're a charter city. So the rules regulating the provincial rules regulating us are different. Our our charter predated everybody else's. Vancouver and Victoria. Yeah, Vancouver and Victoria. And uh, and among the things enumerated that uh, you had to do as a city, uh, a plan was not one of them. So we don't have to have a plan, and we've never, therefore, had a plan what is a plan? A plan is a legally binding, in my view, a plan is a legally binding document as expressed in the zoning map, mm-hmm. which shows the different colors that says what you can do on your block and what you can't. Each color ha- and number has a, has a bylaw attached to it that says, okay, you can do two stories but not 10. You have to have a five-foot setback. Here's the density. Floor-surface ratio called FSR. This is very wonky, but, mm. you know, the density of the building can only be X, X and Y. The reason why, and this is the last minute of this explanation, I guess, the reason why uh, this is a problem is because in the absence of a plan, we actually have a binding zoning map, but it's not been updated since the 1970s. In the absence of a plan and an updated zoning uh, bylaw, everything that happens in the city is done by special exception. It's called a zoning change Mm -hmm. and a comprehensive development plan. So that's what people go completely crazy when, you know, there's a big building that goes up in your neighborhood and everybody, and then it goes in front of council because the council has to come up, has to actually authorize the zone change. Gotcha. And uh, in the context of that, the city extracts a tax called the community amenity contribution, notably. Uh, Under the president administration, they have, gotten in the habit of negotiating those taxes behind closed doors.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. behind
1: closed doors at, with, at the political level. It used to be done in previous administrations at the administrative level within the planning department, but now they've pulled it into the political level. Okay. So the mayor's office is basically uh, uh, participating in the negotiations of what these taxes will be. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a good thing because the political people – are not the right ones to be negotiating these ones because the person across the table is also a person who's giving them campaign donations and all sorts of kind of stuff. So I'm saying that if I got elected mayor, I'd nail shut that back room door uh, and the way we would do that would be by having a city plan where you wouldn't have to negotiate these CACs. It would be very transparent as part of the plan. Gotcha. So if you want to do a million square foot building, you take the amount of the CAC per square foot and multiply it by a million, and that's how much your check to us has to be. Okay. And that's a main source for the non-market housing.
0: Okay, interesting. So we are running short on time, but I have two questions, so I need okay, some brief answers. But I think they're important. Um, I want to talk about the left. What I feel like the the field is quite crowded on the left for the mayoral candidate uh, for the mayoral of Vancouver. What distinguishes your candidacy from Chief Ian Campbell of vision, Kennedy Stewart as an independent and Shauna Sylvester as an independent?
1: I may get into trouble for this, but I don't think uh, you know, I think they don't they don't call themselves the left. They call themselves progressives. And I think progressives has become a word that's gotten really soft. And it's you know a word that has now become in our city aligned with uh, you know the uh, the market production of housing and depending on developers and uh, financiers to provide housing. In other words, it's uh, this this mm. f- this version of progressivism still has tremendous faith in uh, in the market right. t- to do these to to arrive at these social ends. I don't think that's very progressive. I don't think that. Well, actually, what I'm trying to say is, I don't think that's very left, mm-hmm. particularly under the, in this situation. I think the left would want to in, intervene in the market, and I think the other people who are on uh, what you would call what you have just called the left, but I kind of don't think so, are, are not willing to be interventionists in the market to the same. I haven't heard any of them say the kind of things that I'm saying.
0: I definitely haven't heard anyone left or right talk about a city plan, and I think that's what makes uh, what makes your campaign quite appealing and, qu- and quite intriguing as well. Um, one one last thing, I mean, we've really focused on housing for this podcast, yeah. and I, I appreciate that. Well, that's I, the issue. I think it's the main issue, uh, but I'd also like to give you an opportunity to tell me about the rest of your platform. What will your other priorities be if elected as mayor of Vancouver?
1: Well. Hmm, uh that's a, that's a great question, and the, the I have to go back to the plan. Okay, uh, because the plan really deals with a lot of issues like cultural issues, uh, housing for the homeless. Uh, a robust plan will will address in a, even bike lanes, mm-hmm. in in a comprehensive way, in the architecture of the plan, a variety of issues. And my frustration has been we've been dealing with issues one at a time, like homelessness, bike lanes subways, uh, you know, rental... Rent uh, produ- producing new rental units and so forth. All that, I, I believe, as a planner and an urban designer, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, I, I have faith in this process.
0: And can a city plan just be passed by one mayor and council? Yeah. Or, okay.
1: Yeah, and I would hope we could do it in less than two years. Okay, wow. I mean, I've, I've done these at uh, very, very rapid processes. They're called design charrettes. And uh, the trick is to uh, you know get the right stakeholders and engage the right people in the right neighborhood, but also move it through very quickly. So you don't get stuck.
0: Okay, interesting. Well, uh, with that, Mr. Condon, I would like to thank you for your time and for explaining what's going on with housing. If the voters of Vancouver want to learn more about you, about your campaign, or just connect with you, How can they do that?
1: That's a good question. (laughs) Uh, Our website's not up yet. so But by the end of the week, if you look for Patrick Condon for mayor, I'm sure it will pop up. Okay, perfect. And uh, there'll there'll be a way for uh, you to connect. Uh, There'll be a way for you to get involved. Uh, And uh, I hope a lot of people will get involved uh, because I... You know, Sure can't do this alone. You have to get 100,000-plus votes in order to win this thing. Uh, so that's a, that's a lot more people than my mailing list. So <laughs> I, I need a lot of people I don't know to, to, to help me out.
0: Sure. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to be here with me today. I wish you the best of luck from Thanks, uh, now until October. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Patrick Condon, one of the most knowledgeable people on the city's housing crisis and very possibly... Your next mayor of Vancouver. I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. This is Van Color. Peace.